0: As we begin our time in worship today, I invite you to hear these words from Psalm 125. "Those who trust in the Lord are as secure as Mount Zion. They will not be defeated, but they will endure forever. Just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people, both now and forever." Let me paraphrase that uh, verse of uh, two verses in a little different way. Those who trust in the Lord are like a mighty mountain. We trust and we cannot be moved. The Lord surrounds his people to offer us protection. God will be with us through the good times and the bad times. So let us worship our God who is faithful. Pray with me, will you? Almighty God, you love us uh, but always, but we have not always loved you. Sometimes, um, You call, but we are not listening. We walk away from neighbors in need. We get wrapped up in our own concerns. Sometimes we even go along with evil. But God, help us to face up to ourselves this day that as you move us uh, toward your mercy and your love, we may repent and turn toward you and receive your forgiveness. God, we worship you today. We're here, and we place our hands and our lives in yours uh, as we offer ourselves to you in jesus name amen this summer our teaching series is called changed and i want to give you just a little background on what we have in mind this is a series about people who met jesus and their lives were changed their lives were different as a result Some of the stories will come from Scripture, and some may even be personal stories of life change. But throughout the summer, you're going to be treated to some guest speakers, some who you may know, others you may not know as well. Almost all of them worship here and are connected to Redeemer in some way. Uh, We have two of the missionaries that we support as a church who will be on summer home leave. And so a little bit later um, You'll be hearing from them uh, in in their ministries. You'll also be hearing from some folks in our own congregation as well as at least one of the folks who uh, attends the St. John's campus um, who I'm excited that has agreed to come here and and, uh, preach one of the weekends later in the summer. Uh, All of the folks you'll hear from are somehow building uh, around this same common theme of changed. How are our lives different? when we meet Jesus Christ. Today we're in Luke's Gospel, and uh, we're going to be talking about a story of healing uh, in Luke chapter 5. One of the things that we know is that Jesus, in all of his acts of healing, looks at the whole person. In the story that we're going to hear today, he recognizes that a man's paralysis is not just physical. He wanted to be healed, but he didn't have the strength to make a positive act of faith on his own And we also realize that um, there are times in our life when we need help from others, Uh, when we're seeking uh, to be healed in some way ourselves. Uh, We need others in our time of need. And we'll discover that it was uh, this man's friends who came to his rescue. uh, It was not the paralyzed man's own faith to which Jesus responded, but to the faith of his friends. The scripture says that when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, my friend, your sins are forgiven, and when we forgive, when we are forgiven, there's a crippling burden that is lifted from us. And like this man in the story we're going to hear about today, we too can rise up and walk in newness of life. So our story today describes a miracle, and in this miracle, Jesus performs a spiritual and a physical healing. And the question that I'd like for us to wrestle with today is this. Am I a spiritual paralytic? Maybe we're not physically paralyzed, but are we spiritually paralyzed? Can I think of something that I want to do but I'm not able to do unless someone else helps or Jesus comes to my rescue? Uh, Can we think of anyone who might need a helping hand from us today uh, in whatever they're going through? So those are some questions I hope you'll wrestle with as we Hear the message a little bit later. Pray with me, will you? Lord, you uh, come among your people today to those of us who are poor and paralyzed in some way, and you bring us your forgiveness and your tender compassion through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, so help us today to believe. Help us liberate us from our moments of discouragement and powerlessness, and give us a sincere and trusting hope in your healing and compassionate love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French statesman and military leader, said this about Jesus Christ. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but upon what did we rest the creations of our genius? It was force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Although it has been over 2,000 years since Jesus walked the dusty roads of this earth, The words of Napoleon are perhaps more true today than when he first spoke them. It's a strange fact that people all over the world are instinctively drawn to Jesus. Many who call themselves skeptics are not skeptics at all when they get to know Jesus. They may have no use for the church or for organized Christianity in general, but for its founder, many have a deep admiration. Many people do not know Jesus well, but what they do know they admire. doesn't matter what their background, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Jew, Marxist, American. There are a lot of people who give some level of honor to his name. Some don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah or even the divine Son of God, but many regard his teachings as moral, as loving, as good, and even those who use the name of Jesus as a swear word unknowingly pay tribute to his greatness because they are swearing by the greatest name they know. Now with all of that in mind, it's fitting that this summer we spend some time getting a new view of the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. What was Jesus really like as a person? I'm not talking about Jesus the teacher or Jesus the storyteller, but Jesus the person. What was it like to be around him? What kind of person was he? How did he deal with the problems of life? How did people treat him? What would would we have seen if we had been there in Galilee or by the sea uh, or in Jericho or in Bethany hearing him teach? In order to answer those questions, we have to go back to the only records that we have, and that's the four Gospels in the New Testament. And as I thought about it, there are three things that I would like us to look at. First, I want us to know more about Jesus' encounters with unusual people, unlikely people, people who came from unusual backgrounds, unusual occupations, unusual circumstances, or unusual needs. Secondly, I want us to look at the conversations Jesus had with the men and women that he met. In short, we're not looking to explore Jesus, the great teacher, or Jesus and his disciples, but Jesus, the common, ordinary man. What was it like to meet Jesus and interact with him? And then, third, how did meeting Jesus change people's lives? No gospel answers that question, I think, better than the gospel of Luke. It is preeminently the gospel of the individual. It is full of real stories about real people. In Luke's gospel, we see Jesus dealing with a tax collector who's up a tree. We see him dealing with a prostitute who washed his feet with her tears. We see him with a rich young ruler who went away sorrowful and with a woman who touched the hem of his garment to be healed. We know that Luke, the writer, was a physician. It has been said that the, uh, uh, by someone that a pastor's job is to see people at their best. A lawyer or a police officer often see people at their worst, but a physician sees people as they really are. Luke saw people as they were, and he loved them. And his gospel is the story of Jesus written by a kindly and compassionate family doctor. Now, in my mind, he has given us an appealing picture of our Lord. If you want to see Jesus as the Messiah, read the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to see Jesus as a powerful Savior, read the Gospel of Luke. If you want to see Jesus as the Son of God, read the Gospel of John. But if you want to see Jesus as a person who was for people, read Luke. It's little wonder that someone called Luke the Gospel of the underdog. It's written by a man who made his story simple and uncomplicated. In my opinion, it's the easiest of the four Gospels to read because it's meant for people like us. So today we wanna to deal with um, the first encounter that Jesus had with um, a kind of different situation, and that was, it's in, found, the story is found in Luke chapter five. It is the story of a miracle and a controversy. Verse 17 begins to set the scene for us. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem, and the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now, as we study this little photograph that's clipped from Luke's mental scrapbook, the players in the room come into clear focus. First, there is Jesus who's teaching the people. Secondly, there are Pharisees. These are professional teachers of the law. They have come from all over Galilee. They have made the long, hard trip to Capernaum to check out this new guy from Nazareth. Who are they? They're full-time students of the Old Testament, of Jewish tradition. They were legal experts who made their living by splitting Hairs, you know, with the scripture verses and the scripture documents in different ways. They were deeply religious. They were highly educated. They were sincere. They were very moral. They were very upright. They saw themselves as the guardians of the law of God. But what brings this impressive group to an out-of-the-way place like Capernaum? It was rumors and stories. They've been flying around the countryside about Jesus, so they've come to check him out. They have gathered this day partly as spectators, partly as censors, partly as spies. They are a self-appointed board of inquisition, and they mean to trap Jesus in his own words. Keep them in mind, because they are key in this whole encounter. But there's a third group that we need to examine. Off to... The side, just out of the view of the Pharisees, are five very determined men. One lays on a stretcher. The other four are at the corners of that stretcher. Together, they are determined to get to Jesus. And Luke tells us that the man on the stretcher was a paralytic. He had some form of uh, chronic paralysis, a disease that perhaps would be as hopeless today as it was back then. He must have been desperately ill because his friends took desperate steps to get him to, to Jesus. The house itself was kind of typical for those days. It had one room, had a flat roof, an outside stairway, and the roof was made of thatch and tiles laid over thick wooden beams. Now the action begins. Jesus is teaching inside the house. The room is crowded with eager listeners who are leaning forward to catch his every word, and around the walls, the edges of the room, sit the Pharisees silent, impassive, inscrutable. Their faces show no emotion. They are waiting for Jesus to make a mistake. And suddenly there's a noise above them, muffled words and sounds of tiles being moved and more noise and dirt begins to fall from the ceiling. Suddenly a shaft of light breaks through and someone has knocked a hole in the roof. Jesus stops and he looks up and he smiles everyone else looks up to see four faces in the hole peering down at them. All eyes are now focused on this scene, and slowly the four men lower a stretcher through the roof, through that hole in the roof. No one knows what to say. In a few moments, the stretcher comes to rest in the middle of the room, and on the stretcher is a man lying silently, and even a casual glance tells you he's very ill. He looks at Jesus expectantly, and a hush falls over the room. What's Jesus going to do? Luke gives us the answer in verse 20. He says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Now immediately we spot something unusual. The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Doubtless it is the faith of the four young men. This is an example of intercessory faith, faith that benefits another person in need. Jesus saw their ingenuity, their resourcefulness, their persistence, and behind it all, he saw their faith. Without a doubt, he also means to include the man on the stretcher. Surely they didn't bring him against his will. His faith and the deep faith of his friends shone brightly that day. It was perhaps the only faith Jesus was seeing in the whole room. But there's something even more unusual here. Jesus didn't heal the man at first. Instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because this man had a deeper need than physical healing. You see, there's more than one kind of paralysis. There's the paralysis of the body caused by disease or some other factor, but there's also paralysis of the soul caused by sin. And this man was sicker than he knew. He was doubly paralyzed and didn't even know it. The rabbis would say it this way, no sick man is healed until his sins are forgiven. That's because they believe that all suffering was ultimately rooted in sin. Not that this man was especially sinful, he wasn't, but he stands as a kind of object lesson to teach us the truth that death and disease are indirectly consequences of sin. If there was no sin in the universe, there would be no sickness. And if there had been no disobedience at creation at the Garden Garden of Eden, there would be no death. Romans 3.23 still is true. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And you know what? That's true of kings and clowns and philosophers and fools and teachers and students. All of us have the same problem and all of us need the same thing. And Jesus is teaching a lesson by the Uh, by the order in which he does things. One of uh, our greatest problems is spiritual, not physical. As important as healing is physically, it is not nearly as important as forgiveness. We need what Jesus gave this poor man. We need to have our sins forgiven. That's far more important than physical healing because without forgiveness, healing doesn't really matter, does it? It touches the body, but it never touches the soul. Now, at this point, the, shift, the, the focus shifts from the man on the cot to the Pharisees who were gathered around the edge of the room. Look at verse 21. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And their reasoning is clear. Only God can forgive sins. This man is claiming to do that which only God can do, and obviously this man is a blasphemer. Uh, It was pretty simple. One plus two equals three, an open and shut case. Now I should also add that blasphemy was the most serious sin that a Jew could commit. It was the unmistakable and overt defilement of God's name. In Jesus' time, it was a capital offense please note that the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Give them credit for that. It's true that only God can forgive sin. It's also true that Jesus had just forgiven this man's sin. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said to themselves, who does he think he is? God? And that's the whole point. Who is this man? Either he's a blasphemer or he's God. You can kill him or you can worship him, which will it be? See, the Pharisees are a classic example of the perpetually closed mind. They were brilliant. They were analytical, informed, well-read, highly educated, but they had no category big enough for Jesus. As a healer, yes. As a teacher, yes. As a wise man, yes. But as the Son of God from heaven, absolutely not. They have no room for that new idea. And their problem was that they had Jesus in this box, but their box was too small. Jesus was bigger than their box. And in that sense, the Pharisees are just like many well-educated people in our day. They're guilty of hyper itis That's the disease of people who think that they, if they study enough, they can put the whole universe into a series of neat little compartments or boxes. And it might work just fine for things like gnats and June bugs, you know, but it doesn't work for Jesus. He's just too big to be put in some human-made category. The most unfortunate part of this story is that the Pharisees didn't have to make that mistake. They had all the tools to come to the right conclusion. They had forgotten more about the Bible than most people would ever even know about the Bible. They were religious to a fault. They spent their days arguing about the Bible. They knew all the Old Testament predictions concerning the Messiah. They knew exactly what signs to look for, and yet with all of that going on for them, they still came to the wrong conclusion. The question is, who is this man? Everyone who meets Jesus, even today, must answer that question. But the story's not over yet. One miracle has already taken place. Another is about to happen. Look at verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. See, Jesus answers the question with a question, a technique these Jewish lawyers would appreciate. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk? On one level, the answer is neither. You can say either one, but both are equally impossible for a person to do but there's one crucial difference. You can say your sins are forgiven and no one can contradict you because forgiveness is not visible to the eyes. So you can say it all you want and no one will ever know whether you've really done it or not. On the other hand, there's an easy way to check if someone says stand up and walk. Healing is a visible miracle. Jesus is proposing a test. He's offering the Pharisees incontrovertible proof of who he really is. If Jesus is a blasphemer, how could he perform a miracle? That would be impossible. Jesus is saying, if I don't heal this man, then you're right about who I am. But if I do heal him, you must admit that I'm who I claim to be. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 24. So I will prove to you. That's the key to this whole passage. Let me put it into one sentence. Jesus did the miracle they could see so that they might know he had already done the other miracle that they couldn't see. The healing itself is instantaneous. It's complete and it's public. The four who brought the paralytic could testify to how sick he had been and now the whole crowd could testify to how well he was. So complete was the healing that the man picked up his bed and began to walk home. And as he did, the crowd parted to let him through. Off to the side, people whispered, "Who? Did you see that? How did he do that?" As one commentator put it, "The bed the man had carried, or the bed had carried the man up to this point, and now the man is carrying the bed." The point is clear: both healing and forgiveness flow from the word. Of Jesus Christ. He has authority to do both because he is the Son of God. Now, only one detail remains, and that's in verse 26. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. Now, the word amazed in the original language of the New Testament means something like to blow your mind. People who had come to hear Jesus were utterly, totally, absolutely flabbergasted. They had never seen anything like this. They were praising God and they were scared to death all at the same time. And when they said, We have seen remarkable things, they used a word that relates to our English word, paradox. Literally, we have seen a paradox today, something contrary to all of our expectations. Meanwhile, these Pharisees sitting along the edge were silent. They didn't suddenly just believe in Jesus, jump up and down and praise Jesus. They didn't have anything to say. So four things happened uh, on this day of paradoxes. The man on the stretcher was healed, his sins were forgiven, the crowd was amazed, and the Pharisees were totally confounded. So what's the main point of this story? It's not the miracle. It's not the miracle. As wonderful as that is, it only raises the central question again Who is this man? In order to be forgiven, two things have to happen. One, we must be willing to be forgiven. And two, we must believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. And that brings us face to face with maybe the most profound question in the world Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man? Every man, woman, boy, or girl must ultimately answer that question. None of us can remain neutral. It is, as, it is true that many of us today are instinctively drawn to Jesus. Like those who crowded into the house in Capernaum, we love to hear him speak, and yet like them, we don't always really know who he is. This morning's observation is simple. Most people consider Jesus a good man, a good teacher, or the best man who's ever walked on the earth, but we can't stop there. We've gotta go one way or the other. Who is this man? This is the question asked of every one of us. What does our heart say? Who is he? Is he just a carpenter or is he something much greater than that? Is he just another religious leader or is he the son of God? If he's a blasphemer, then I invite you to go join the crowd who killed him. If he's the son of God, then I invite you to crown him Lord of your life. By most accounts, C.S. Lewis was the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. Uh, Surely no one has done as much to make the basic issues of Christianity intelligible to the modern world, And for many years, he was professor at Oxford University and then many more years at Cambridge. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis sums up the issue this way. He says, I am here trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level uh, with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So in conclusion, let me just draw all the strands of this message together in three simple statements. There is enough evidence of who Jesus is to convince those who want to believe. Secondly, there are always ways to avoid the truth for those who want to avoid it. And third, the next move is up to you. You have the evidence, you have the testimony, and all the proof that you will ever need. But you must take the final step. What happens now is up to you. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Let's pray. Father, we are faced with a great question, one which we all must answer sooner or later. So open our eyes and help us to see Jesus as he really is. Grant that we may give him the honor that is his due. Help us with one accord to crown him as King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray, amen.